Good morning. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm excited to get to go to Psalm 127 with you this morning. So you can turn there with me now as we continue in this summer of Psalms, looking at what it looks like to be whole people. Psalm 127, short psalm, five verses, but just filled with uh, some incredible stuff for us to meditate on this morning. So um, as you're turning there, though, let's... uh, Let's just take a moment to, uh, to begin thinking about what Psalm 127 um, gets, us, gets us thinking about here. So um, we, we downloaded uh, Disney Plus over the summer and, or last year and watched through all kinds of, um, and I've talked about this before, uh, watched through all kinds of old Disney movies, and one of them was Alice in Wonderland. And there's this character, right, um, that, that pops up all the time in that movie, and this is his line, I'm late, I'm late for a very important date. No time to say hello, goodbye, I'm late, I'm late, I'm late. There's this anxious rabbit running throughout, and so maybe you recognize that, you remember that, but um, you hear that line, though, and I think sometimes we recognize that very heart in ourselves. How many of us feel like that on the inside? Anxious, no margins, feeling like everything will crumble if we don't finish all our checklists or perfectly manage all our obligations busyness, activity, and constant decisions to be made overwhelm us. I'm as guilty of this as anyone. And when we're overwhelmed by the busyness of life, exhausted by the grind, especially for an extended period of time, the pace of our lives is really just exposing a distorted posture of our heart. That our success, our approval, our value, it depends on me depends on you. I don't think any of us consciously really say that, but how often do we live and act as if that's true? That seeking these things, our our successes, our our accomplishments, uh, of the approval of others, seeking those things on their own is what drives us, and it will drive us harder and harder and harder, and it's, we, we will, because we'll never reach it. At the end of the day, we'll, we'll never measure up, we'll never reach that final success that feels like that, that's it. I've finally reached my goal. We'll, we'll always want more. We'll, we'll never have the approval of everyone. The, the seeking after approval is, one that is a goal that is only going to drive us into the ground. And as we seek those things and drive harder and harder after them, we'll eventually burn out. We'll constantly live like the white rabbit in Alice in Wonderland, feeling like we're late, we're late. No time for relationships, no time to say hello or even goodbye because we're constantly just trying to catch up and we're never able to get ahead. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you feel the burn of that and you've just been hoping, you've been holding on for summer, right, for, for the pandemic to get over and for you to finally just be able to reach that moment where, where you can have that vacation again, you can have that moment of rest, you can finally finally get out of this grind for a little bit and then you reach that vacation, you hit this summer and you realize that while as great as a vacation is, it's so momentary, it, it, it doesn't refresh like you hope for it to. And you get right back into the grind and you're at it once again. We burn out. We live at a pace that's unsustainable for us. 
But there is a better way, and that's what we come to in, in Psalm 127. If we want to be whole people, if we want, we want to, to pursue whole lives, then we have to live at a pace that is shaped by the gospel. And that's really what, what Solomon is calling us to here in Psalm 127, and, and what he's painting of a picture of a whole life, of being whole people, of living at a pace that's shaped by the gospel. And so let's read this text this morning and begin to dive in and, and see what, what does this look like as opposed to the pace that our world constantly calls us to run at. What is the pace of life that leads us to be whole people and is shaped by the gospel rather than the, the culture of this world? Solomon writes this. He says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for, uh, Lord, giving us a different way, a better way. A way that doesn't lead to burnout. A way that doesn't um, crush us and drive us into the ground. But instead leads us to, to wholeness, to health, to vitality, to the peace in you. And so God, I pray that, that we, would, we would look at this psalm this morning and we'd be able to draw from it all that you would have us to hear, God. Let not just not man's words, not Brandon's words, God, but let it be your words to us. May your Holy Spirit fill us now. Fill me to speak your words. Lord, fill all of us to hear and to have ears to hear that we might leave this place transformed by your word and the working of the Spirit in our lives, God. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 127 first gives us a, a picture of, of the beauty of the whole life, of, of, of this, what it looks like to live as whole people. The psalm here points us to a picture of a life that leaves an impact, that enjoys peace, and that thrives in relationships. This is the picture that, that, that's painted by Solomon here that, that he'll we'll break down how we get there eventually. We're going to talk about the pursuit of that whole life. But first, let's just talk about the beauty of a whole life that, that Solomon really paints for us here. The picture of the whole life that we begin to, to see in this psalm is, is one, first off, it's one that leaves an impact. Verse 1 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. And so what he's talking about here is that there is a way to live if, you're, if, if God's not in it, everything you do is in vain. But if God is in it, then what you do matters. It has a lasting impact. It, it leaves a legacy. And so the picture of the whole life is one in which our work is not in vain. It's not just one of curse from the fall. But our work matters. A whole life does leave an impact. It's got to be done in, in relationship to God. It's got to be done in partnership with God. That's what lasts in this life. Because we're but dust. We're passing. We're momentary. And yet God is eternal. And so, so unless God builds the house, we do it in vain. But, but a whole life, a whole life, the, the better way, offers a life 
it leaves an impact. It leaves a legacy, not for us, not about us, but as Lin-Manuel Miranda's Hamilton puts it, it's planting seeds in a garden that you never get to see. We may not see it, but by God's grace, a whole life, a life lived dependently on God, we get to be a part of the work of God and the story of God, the eternal story of God, of what God's been doing from all of history and into all of eternity. We get to be a part of that. Our work can count. But then the picture of the whole life doesn't stop there. It it not only leaves an impact, but it also enjoys peace. See, we often operate that, hey, if my life's going to matter, we often operate like like Hamilton. If my life's going to to leave an impact, leave a legacy in this world, then I've got to go nonstop, right? Like I've got to constantly go, go, go. And yet Solomon makes really clear here that that's, that's the opposite of a whole life. That's the opposite of the kind of life that actually leaves an impact, that actually lasts. Verse 2, it says, It's in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. The kind of life that leaves an impact is not the kind of life, though, that also is anxiously striving. It's a life that actually enjoys peace in the midst of work in the midst of leaving an impact. It's not working yourself to the bone or constantly depriving yourself of sleep because everything is urgent. Working as if everything rises and falls on your ability to to make it happen. It's a life that embraces one's limitations instead. It's a life that recognizes rest as a gift from the only one who doesn't need rest. Solomon talks a lot about vanity here. Vanity of trying to make a difference on our own. Vanity of of, of burning the midnight oil. Because that's not how God built us. That's not how God made us. We're not limitless. Only he is. And so verses 1 and 2 teach us that, that the picture of the whole life, one, leaves an impact, but it also enjoys peace. It's not an anxious striving or toiling. And then verses 3 through 5, we, we get this final piece of the picture of the whole life here that, that Solomon is painting. And it's one that prioritizes relationships. It thrives in relationships. Whole people don't miss what's of greatest worth in the midst of our work. And that's people. Whole life thrives. The whole life thrives in the midst of relationships. A whole life is marked by our community and the, the impact that we make on people, especially our children. Verse 3, it says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior. Once again, we see that picture of, of, uh, of impact, right? An arrow in battle is, is remarkably impactful. And so like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. And, yet, and so it's not about task here that matter, but it's about the people, right? It's about the people, especially our children. It's a life that's defined not by task, that we complete, but lives that are changed. And so the whole life is a life that leaves an impact, that enjoys peace, and it thrives in relationship. What's interesting, though, is that the author of this psalm, Solomon, didn't always grasp this picture of the whole life and, or the path towards it. He missed it big time. 
early on in his life. He, and he details that out and, um, as he pursues all kinds of accomplishments and he pursued all kinds of paths in order to find satisfaction in, li- in his life. In the book of Ecclesiastes written by Solomon, he details out all of these pursuits he had in order to find satisfaction, in order to find the whole life. He tried success. He tried just leisure and enjoying all the things of the world. He tried all kinds of different paths, and yet at every turn, his life was left wanting. Left wanting more, not satisfied. That's what the book of Ecclesiastes is all about. And at one point, he declares this about work. In Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 22 to 23, he says, What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is a vanity. See, Solomon tried the path of of working on his own, of bearing it all on his own, trying to accomplish all of the things possible, to leave a legacy that would make a name for himself. And yet at the end of the day, what he came to was, it's all worthless. It's all vanity is what he said. Solomon recognized the emptiness that ultimately comes from a life of striving and of toiling. And after all those hard lessons, Solomon writes Psalm 127. It not only points us to a picture of the whole life, but it also points us to what it looks like to pursue that whole life. Before you get to that, I want to dive into two obstacles that, that keep us from pursuing that whole life. As we've seen this, this one begins to paint here of, of a life that does matter, a life that does leave an impact, a life that yet, while working hard, enjoys peace and enjoys rest, that, that isn't just striving in, in, in our souls with the constant burden, and, and it's actually focused on people and not just a list of tasks to get done. And as we see that picture, there, there's two big obstacles that get in our way of pursuing that. We've got we to ask... And, before we get to the pursuit, what keeps us from living this kind of life? One, it's an obsession with work. And then two, it's a freedom from work. It's, it's the belief that, that, that work is the solution or the absence of work is the solution. Or we can go either way in, the, in, in trying to find the whole life. We can either become obsessed with work or believe that freedom from work is the solution. And we see this in, in a couple of different places in Scripture. One... Genesis chapter 11, we see the obsession with work, that, that, that our accomplishments, what we can do on our own, will bring ultimate satisfaction. In Genesis chapter 11, um, you see the, the story of the Tower of Babel, when, when all of humanity is gathered in one place, there's all one language, and they are ultimately coming together, it says, so that we can make a name for ourselves. How much of our work and how much of our striving is doing just that? And what they do is they build this massive tower so that they can reach to heaven on their own, doing it by their own works, not so that that God would come down to them and that they would experience the grace of God, but rather that they, by their works, would reach God themselves. So they can make a name for themselves, right? That's what they said. And so we can operate in that way. That we can, in the pursuit of the whole life, we, we end up becoming obsessed with work. That that's what's ultimately going to satisfy us. That's what's ultimately going to bring us joy and peace. Is if we can finally just reach those goals, make a name for ourselves. Find the approval of others. 
or reach some achievement that we've always longed for. And that will drive us to the ground. It will ultimately bring us destruction like it did for those at Babel. I know this because like, this is the path that I so often go down personally. Remember, several years back, we were living in New York City, which is just this fast driving pace of life in the first place. We were living in New York City, and I, I in many ways, loved that. I loved just getting up in the morning, walking out, the, the fast walk to the subway, hopping on the subway, just the bustle of the city. Um, but, but over time, I just really began to buy into that striving, that, that work mindset that, that it all rises and falls on me. And while working at a church plant in New York City, uh, I was also pursuing my, my PhD um, at Southern Seminary. And so I'd, I'd been driving hard in the city and then uh, spent um, two weeks um, working on PhD seminars in Louisville, Kentucky. And um, sometimes those, uh, I mean, those seminars were from like eight in the morning until eight at night. And uh, I drank a lot of Starbucks coffee. Let's just put it that way. All day, there was like an IV drip in me to stay awake uh, through those seminars at times. And so I um, had a lot of caffeine. And then I hit the road um, to start heading back after those seminars were over and um, was still just utterly wiped. And so I grabbed a five-hour energy, which I don't do very often, and I never do anymore. Um, and I grabbed a five-hour energy, and um, it was not but five minutes later that my heart just started like going like this and and like while I, I should have been energized I was still just like I was toast I had been driving so hard out of a fear of failure that like it was all going to come crumbling down like if I just if I didn't get like this paper refined a little bit more if I if I didn't prep for this book discussion if I wasn't ready for this that or whatever it may be coming down the pipe with the PhD and all these different responsibilities that I was trying to pursue, this fear of failure began to crush me. And, and as a result, I've just, like, I was reaching for whatever I could to hold myself up. Not for the Lord to hold me up, but for, to hold myself up. And I did it by caffeine and lots of it. And I remember a couple weeks later after I was like, okay, I've got to, like, limit the caffeine deal. It was sitting in the movie theater and, um, knew that this problem wasn't just going over way overnight because I was sitting in the movie theater watching Jurassic World um, and, like, that is not a remarkably scary movie, okay? So, like, I'm not scared by that, but all of a sudden, like, my body just went into this, like, like heart palpitations once again. And I was like, am I, like, scared right now or what was going on? I realized that, like, God was revealing to me that, like, I had pushed myself to the brink, that I had just been, it was just humbling me in that season, to show me that, like, hey, this is, this is something much deeper than just, like, a two-week period of intense seminars. Like, like you, have, you have turned to striving and toiling on your own. And I don't know what it is for you. For me, it was fear of failure, desire for approval of others. It was a mixture of all kinds of idols. What is it for you? that drives you in that kind of way. The idol of achievement, the idol of approval, the idol of something else. But uh, ultimately, like this obsession with work is, is one of the ways that can get us off the path towards the whole life in the Lord. When work becomes our hope, we're operating without grace. Or we're operating in a way that's not shaped by the gospel. An obsession with work is a detour from the gospel. As much as we, we, we want to be gospel people, we're committed to the gospel, we can oftentimes jump into the, the stream of this culture of our world that, that says if we just strive a little harder, then we'll finally reach our goals. But the good news of the gospel is, is 
pointing us to the fact that an obsession with work is not our hope. Because when work becomes our hope, we're operating without grace. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9 points us to this, this fact. It says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and it is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 is, is portraying to us the freeness of the gospel. The fact that Jesus came and did the work so that we wouldn't have to. He freed us from having to work to be approved before God, from having to work to finally achieve some sort of salvation or achieve some sort of approval of others. We are freed from that in Jesus because he came and lived the perfect life. And no matter how messed up we've made this life, no matter how good we could possibly live, we can't make up for the sin that we've committed against a holy God. And so Jesus, as the holy God, came and took our punishment for us. And he offers us salvation by grace, not by works. So that none of us can boast. So it's not about making a name for ourselves. And so the path of the whole life is not through work, but it's through grace. Grace undermines our hope in work. And so the path of the whole life is, is through grace. It's, it's, it's putting aside an obsession with work and recognizing and embracing grace in our lives. And so that's one extreme side that we can go towards is this obsession with work that needs to be corrected by grace. We're reminded that, that our hope and our peace and our joy, that our life, our ultimate salvation is not found in anything other than the grace of Christ by trusting in him and him alone, not in our own personal striving. But that's, that's only one way we can get off that path. Another way that, that needs to be corrected by grace just as much is this idea that, that my hope for the whole life is a freedom from work. Some of us become obsessed with work for the whole life. Others of us go to this side of the extreme of freedom from work is my hope. This is what the Thessalonians did. If you go to the second letter to Thessalonians, Paul addresses them in chapter 3, um, verses 5 to about 16. And, and he's calling out their desire to be free from work. They're looking to the fact, they're like, Jesus is coming back. Why do I need to work anymore? And so they just began, because of what a misinterpretation of grace was that, hey, we don't have to work at all. Like, Jesus is going to come back soon, and so we can just kind of, like, like our hope and our goal is just to, to have leisure, to rest, to, to enjoy, um, and eat, drink, and be merry, right? Like, that was, that was their hope. Like, they were, they were seeking a freedom from work. And we do this too. Some of us live for the weekends, right? Or, or, or your hobbies, or the next Netflix binge, you hang on until vacation because your hope is in that next break. Like, yes, it's hard. It's like I'm pushing through. I just get to that vacation. You're just hanging on for vacation after vacation or weekend after weekend. Work becomes this um, just something to get through, not this dignifying thing that God has gifted us with. You work for retirement. You, you're, just, you're longing for that day where you can quit work and just enjoy the, the, the things that um, bring you pleasure in life. You avoid extra responsibilities or obligations because, because the, the whole life to you looks like a lack of work, a, a leisure, just enjoying the pleasures of this life. When rest or ceasing from work becomes our hope, though, we cheapen grace. It's actually a distortion of grace. Grace, yes, frees us from, the, the, from our own works being our hope, but it doesn't free us from work. It frees us to work for God. 
by God's power. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. We see that like, salvation is not by, um, by our works, but it's by grace. And yet we see that we're, we're not just saved from something, but we're saved for something. Ephesians 2, verse 10 says this. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 points us to the fact that grace provides purpose in our work. Yes, on one side, grace undermines our hope in our work, but then it also provides purpose in our work. And so it corrects both of these extremes in which grace can be manipulated or, or distorted in all kinds of ways. And so some of us, we don't, we don't fall into one camp or the other, but we swing back and forth. We, we work to the point of burnout, and then we swing to the other end of the spectrum where we struggle with the desire to, to, um, to get anything done because we just can't anymore. And so Psalm 127 provides this corrective. It points us to a whole life that, that, that doesn't find its hope in an obsession with work or freedom from work. But it recognizes the correctives that grace gives to us, that, that it undermines our hope in our work and it provides purpose in our work. And, and Psalm 127 um, helps us to recognize that we shouldn't work in a frantic way like in Babel or be lazy in our work like the Thessalonians. We recognize that work is good. And Eugene Peterson says this. He says, Psalm 127 shows a way to work that is near sheer activity nor pure passivity. It doesn't glorify work as such, and it doesn't condemn work as such. It doesn't say, God has a great work for you. Go and do it. Nor does it say, God has done everything. Go fishing. Look, we all desperately need grace to experience the whole life, to, to rightly approach work, to recognize that our hope isn't in our work, and yet it's also not in freedom from work, because work is a gift from God. It is something in which he invites us in to his work and his story to be a part, to have an impact in the world, to have purpose. He gives us purpose in our work. And that's a grace as well. And so how do we become whole people that leave an impact, that enjoy peace, that thrive in relationships, that rightly approach work at a right kind of pace? Well, that's what we see in Psalm 127. I believe Solomon gives us really practical ways to pursue the whole life here. I believe this psalm calls us to this. And, and so and write this down. That this psalm calls us to pursue the whole life by living at the pace of grace. Psalm 127 calls us to, to pursue the whole life by living at the pace of grace. So how do we live that, at a pace of grace? Life at the pace of grace is three things. and breaks down this whole chapter. Life at the pace of grace works dependently. It rests gratefully. And it invests patiently. Let's break that down. Verse 1, we see that life at the pace of grace works dependently. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. And so it's this idea that, look, like it is, it is all about the grace of God that our work can matter. Unless God is going with us, unless God is the one doing the work, then, then it doesn't matter. It's in vain. And yet, that doesn't mean that we don't work, right? It, it's still, we're still called to build. We're still called to labor. It's just that when God is at work with us, and through us, then it matters and it lasts. And so we've got to work depending upon the Lord with a radical dependence on God. 
So how do we do that? How do we work dependently? I believe Psalm 46.10 gives us a really good picture of that. It starts with being still. It means before we dive into work, that we would be still before the Lord. Psalm 46.10 says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted on all the earth. Like that is God's great purpose for all of history, that he would be exalted, that he would be glorified. And that's the great glorious purpose that we are invited in to be a part of, to spread his glory across the earth, to display his greatness, to tell others about his greatness. This is what we get to do and be a part of. And yet he says, like, like how is he going to make that happen? First and foremost, by us being still and knowing that he is God, that this work Whatever we do, whatever business we're in, whether you're a college student or you're a stay-at-home mom or you're in the, the business world or you're in politics or whatever it may be, like whatever we do, it starts with being still. That our work doesn't start with action, but it starts with recognizing the God who's at work. And so being still and knowing that he's God starts with simply being in the word and prayer. And we begin our days and saturate our days in this word. Hearing from the Lord, remembering that unless he is at work, then all that we do is in vain. Remembering that it's not all on our shoulders. That we don't have to strive and toil as if it all depends on us and that it's all going to come crumbling down if we don't hit every note just right. We remember that he's God, that he's sovereign, that he will accomplish his good purposes. He will be exalted among the nations, Psalm 46.10. It's not a question of if, but will we join him? And then we pray. We recognize that prayer is the, the greatest way we can express our dependence upon the Lord. And so we need to stop and pray, but then Thessalonians points us to the fact that we need to pray without ceasing. So we need a, a lifestyle that is dependent upon him in prayer. That's the whole point of that idea of prayer without ceasing. That doesn't mean you're constantly walking around with your eyes closed in a traditional look of prayer, but rather that we would live a lifestyle in communion with God that depends on him every moment of every day. And so we've got to start. In order to work dependently, we've got to be still. Still our hearts before the Lord. Hear from Him. Go to Him in prayer. Martin Luther said this. God had accomplished a lot. Made a fairly big impact, like, on the world. He said this. He said, I have so much to do that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. I don't know about you, but that's like the complete backwards way I approach it, right? Like if I have a long checklist for the day, most of the time it's, all right, God, like I've got to get through this and like, all right, th th that's really good. Okay, uh, thank you, God. And I go, right? Like, and that's, I mean, some days like it's not even that holy, right? Like some days it's just, it doesn't even get addressed. Like I just start and I know like I've got a ton to do. But Luther is saying, no, 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 no. The more we have to do, the more that God is calling us to steward with our lives, the more we need prayer. I have so much to do that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. Like that's a different kind of pace, right? That is living life at a pace of grace. And that doesn't mean that we need to all like, like spend first three hours of our days in prayer. I just think it shows us, though, what it looks like to begin to live a life and work dependently upon the Lord, 
rather than dependence upon ourselves. And so, living at the pace of grace, first off, works dependently, but secondly, it rests gratefully. Verse 2, it is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. It's in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest. How many of us, when we're in a busy season of life, like really try to like push the clock as far as we can one direction and then we set the alarm as early as we can, and you know, we might hit the snooze a couple of times, but like we are really just trying to push ourselves to limit sleep as much as possible. We're finding caffeine or we're finding different ways to, um, to be able to try to go with as little sleep as possible. If we can get that little short little power nap in, right? Like just in the middle of the day, like use those kinds of things and find whatever tips and tricks we can in help, self-help books in order to to be able to go, go, go and get it, squeeze as much time out of the day as possible. Like Solomon's saying, it's in vain that you do that. Because one, remember, it doesn't depend on you. But also because God gives you sleep as a gift. He gives you sleep as a gift. It's not this thing to be written off as, as just something we've got to do. Um, in order to be able to like keep going and so we just kind of like begrudgingly go to sleep each night um, and take a break from our work but rather we've got to recognize that, that rest that sleep is actually a gift from God that helps us to recognize our own limits and to model our dependence on him if we're not resting well we're not depending on Jesus very well like sleep is actually an act of worship like, if, we, if we go into it with the right mindset sleep is an act of worship it's it's a time in which we can we can acknowledge god i am limited and i need sleep to recharge you are the only one who does not need sleep you're the only one you're the one who sustains through the night day after day from beginning to end he does not sleep he doesn't need rest he rested on the seventh day of creation to show us and to give us a model of sabbath not because he needed to rest but to give us the gift of the Sabbath. This, this day in which we would take a rhythm every week and acknowledge that, that just pushing ourselves over and over again, day in and day out, is not our hope. It's not our hope for leaving an impact. It's not our hope for, for peace and the whole life. But, but rather, sleep and Sabbath are both gifts from God to recognize our limitations and to live a life of dependence, to live at the pace of grace. If you're not practicing Sabbath, I just encourage you, like, like begin to set aside a day. And maybe, you, like, it, it's going to be, it's going to take a little while to adjust, right? And you need to just start with half a day, right? You're going to, it's going to take a little time to adjust and make room for that. But begin to, to, to whittle out that time so that you can begin to model this dependence in your life, to recognize your own limitations, and to recognize that it's God who does the work, not you, so we've got to rest gratefully. And then lastly, we've got to invest patiently. I think it's, I feel like Solomon must have like written this uh, verses two and three with a bit of a smirk on his face because he goes from, I give to his beloved sleep to behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. And if any of you are parents in here, then you know that those two are just uh, really funny things.
right beside each other. I just had a newborn, um, and so um, my wife is the one uh, probably feeling this much more than I am, but there is a lack of sleep in our house, all right? And my boys don't sleep well, and so um, there's been four and a half, almost five years of lack of sleep in our house, and so I think it's pretty funny. He gives to his beloved sleep, behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, but he's reminding us of what matters most, of the investments that matter most, people. We're called to invest in the slow things. Investing in our children is a slow work. You discipline, and you discipline, and you discipline. You come up with all kinds of ways to, 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 to show them the right way, and they just continue to go in the other direction. And yet, after years of being consistent and faithful, you begin to see some fruit. Investment in children is a slow process. The investment in anybody, investment in, in someone that you're discipling, an investment in, in friends in your life and family and, and, and people in general is a slow investment. And we're called to invest patiently, to invest in the slow things in life. That's what this picture of children is about. It's not just a message for, for those that have kids here. I believe Solomon is driving us to children here because it's, it's probably the best picture of slow investment that pays off in the end if you just continue faithfully year after year. But it's really just this picture of, of investing in the slow things. Fathers, though, I do want to address us this morning. Living at the pace of grace means that we invest in the slow things and the sacrificial work of discipling our kids. And that can be hard especially when they like jump off the top of the couch onto the top of your head because they think dad can handle anything, right? But the beauty of this is, is that God intends the investment of our kids to be one of the most lasting and powerful legacies that we can make. That if we're living at the pace of grace, then we are going to prioritize our kids. That we're not just going to run roughshod over them as we, we make priority for work. That we'll let the yard work go because we need to spend time with our kids. We'll let some of those projects go sometimes because our kids are more important. Doesn't mean we ignore work, and that doesn't mean we, we don't work hard and go after those things, but it does mean that we, we slow down and we remind ourselves that, hey, if some of those things fall through the cracks, it's much better than if our kids fall through the cracks. And so, fathers, I just ask, how are you investing in your kids? How are you investing in the slow work of discipling them, pointing them to the grace of the gospel day after day? And then church, who are you investing in? You may not have kids. You, you, you may have kids that are out of the house. But, but who are you investing in? Who are you investing patiently in, faithfully in, year after year or day after day? Who are you investing in? Because... The pace of grace invests patiently. It invests in the slow things. All right? Our, as we wrap up this morning, in Psalm 127, this is what I want us to walk away with. Our only hope to be whole people, to flourish as God intends, and to have whole lives is, is to embrace grace. It's to embrace a, a life lived at the pace of grace. It's not one of toil and striving, but that, that, that embraces grace. In the pace that we live. Look, for a life that lasts, we need to trust in the grace of Jesus. 
for an eternal life, for a hope of life with Jesus for all of eternity. We've got to trust in him and in him alone. That it's not by our works that we can be saved, but it's by the grace of Jesus and what he did for us that we can have life and have full life, an abundant life. And so if you've never trusted in Jesus, like, like today is the day to do that. Trust in him and in his grace alone. He can free you from your sins. He can free you from this striving that will never satisfy. And he can give you a whole life that lasts. For those of you that have trusted in Jesus, though, for the, for the, to pursue that whole life, day in and day out, that a, a whole life that leaves an impact, that enjoys peace, that thrives in a relationship, we must live at that pace of grace that works dependently, that invests patiently, that rests gratefully. Because here's the reality, unless God pours out his grace on us, unless God is at work with us, unless God sustains us, unless God builds our families, unless God multiplies our investment in people, unless God builds this church, unless God makes the legacies in our lives last, unless God, all of our efforts will be in vain. So church, may we be a people that live at the pace of grace.